0: My name is Nick, I'm the new, I think you could still call me new, lead pastor here. I'll probably be new for the first year, I imagine. <laughs> uh, it's, it's good to see you all, um, and it's also it's amazing to get to, to see everyone's hands raised high when it came to time to share testimonies and things, and what God's been doing. That was really encouraging for me, hopefully for you as well. Um, we are in the Psalms. Right now, the the psalm for this morning you can probably see it on your handout, but uh, it's Psalm 46. If you need a Bible, the ushers have one, and uh, if if you need one at your house, you can keep this one. It's our gift to you. And like the the uh, like David announced, we're going to be having the prayer meeting at uh, our house tonight. We'd love to see you there. Uh, we're not necessarily going to have, well, we'll have some goodies. We did a Costco run, uh, but we're not going to have dinner and things like that. Uh, but we'll just have, have little snacks for everybody, and uh, we'll spend the time in prayer together and sing some songs and things. So hope, hope to hope to see you come out. Um, we are in the Psalms for about, I'm guessing, for the next three weeks. Um, we did Psalm 13 last week, and now Psalm 46. And one of the things I had said regarding the Psalms is, that there's, this, there's this troubling reality uh, in a fallen world, I suppose, where we can know a lot of things about God. We can hear and even, to some degree, understand and be able to spout it off, you know, different doctrine and other things like that. But sometimes there's this disconnect between what we know and um, what we feel. We don't feel appropriately in response to what we know of God. Uh, You've heard guys like Jonathan Edwards and and John Piper talk about this idea of uh, the light should be matched with the heat. In other words, what light comes in in terms of information should be matched with heat in terms of affection. And the Psalms help us, they teach us how to feel our faith. With that being said, I wanted to read Psalm 46, Um, not altogether different in theme from last week, actually, Um, but a lot of rich, good stuff here. So we'll read it, I'll pray, and we'll just get right into it. I got a lot for us here this morning. Psalm 46, start with the uh, superscript there, to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamot, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God Say hello. Let's pray. Lord, we do want to be still. We fill our days with noise. And when we don't fill it ourselves, our culture is ready to fill it for us. And a lot of times it's a distraction It keeps us from an awareness of the one who is over it all, sovereign, the maker of heaven and earth, and our Savior, Redeemer, and our Father and Friend. God, I pray that in the midst of what can even bring in more noise, trials and suffering, and the chaos that we feel, I pray that your people today would see that you really are refuge, strength, help, fortress. Quiet our hearts, quiet our minds, quiet the noise, quiet the storm, and let us see You here in Your Word. Through the inscripturated Word, we want to see the incarnate Word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I thought, you know, last week I made a big deal about the... uh, the superscripts in the Psalms. I actually want to make a point real quick before we begin from the superscript here, which again is just a little kind of title that's actually a part of the original manuscripts we have uh, up there. It's probably not even given a verse number in your translations. But I want to make note of this. I I don't think it's a coincidence that this Psalm is uh, a Psalm of the Son's Of Korah. Okay? I don't know if you remember the story of Korah. I had to go back and do a quick refresher, but it's pretty interesting how the things that uh, went down there kind of relate to this psalm. Korah was a Levite, and Israel at this time was in the wilderness, kind of wandering from uh, Egypt, going towards the Promised Land. And Korah stages this rebellion against Moses and Aaron. He gets about 250 other leaders within Israel to go, wait a minute, why are Moses and Aaron so cool? Why are they so exalted? We want to get some of that love too. And they're going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they kind of all gather together against Moses and Aaron here in the wilderness. And their sin rises to such a degree uh, that God says this, He opens up... The earth and swallows them. It says they go down alive into shale. This is Korah. This is the 250 men and their families. It's, it's told to us. That the earth just splits apart and these guys swallowed whole. But we're told in Numbers 26, 11 that for some reason... You don't know why? The sons of Korah, though the sons of all the other men, it seems, went down with their fathers, the sons of Korah were spared. don't know why? All you can do is attribute it, I think, to sovereign grace. And I just thought, you know what? That's exactly where we are, right? We should be down in the pit. The earth should have just opened up for us, swallowed us whole, but instead by sovereign grace we're standing and we know God as a fortress even in the midst of chaos, even in the midst of a shaking earth. We know Him as our protector and as our Savior. And we don't know why. We can't give a reason why. It's the mystery of this kind of love that gives rise to Psalm 46's. And I think the sons of Korah have some of that in their mind, perhaps. They're aware we don't even deserve this. God is a fortress. And when the earth is shaking and giving way, He's still merciful to His people. I thought that was interesting. And my, my hope, my hope, is that for those of us who are already in that place here this morning of, wow, God, you are my help and amazed by His sovereign grace. This sermon would just kind of be fuel for that fire. But for those of of you who aren't in that place, kind of wondering, where is God? What's going on? My prayer is that this sermon would stir up the embers of your devotion to Him, and you would see Him afresh in that way with the sons of Korah. Now, um, I'm going to organize my thoughts this morning under three headings. The first is uh, an, an ironic contrast. I want to look at an ironic contrast. It shows up in verses 1 through 7. Then I want to look at an ironic command, which we see in verses 8 through 11. And then we will land on an ironic Christ. And look at how all that we see in this psalm is headed towards our Savior, His cross, and resurrection. So, an ironic contrast first. Verses 1 through 7. What I want to do here is actually walk through these verses line by line. And I trust that as we move through the contrast, we'll start to become clear and you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. But first, I want to read just verse 1. It says this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. A couple notes for us here as we begin to look at our psalm. I was was moved by the first three words, but right now I just want to make note of the first two words. God is. God is. This psalm begins somewhat differently than Psalm 13 that we looked at last week. While this psalm certainly has troubles in the background here. I mean, it says it there. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So troubles are here in this psalm. That serves as the background, but it's not the focus. The focus is who God is in the midst of these troubles. And what does He highlight for us? What do the sons of Korah highlight for us? God is refuge. He's the one we run to for shelter and protection. God is strength. He's the one we rely on to get us through trials. And God is a very present help in trouble. The Hebrew there simply points us to this fact that He is exceedingly found by us. He is a help that is found every time we look for Him. That's what they're trying to say about this God. He will never leave, He will never forsake. God is. Psalm 13 began how? Looking at the circumstances, looking at kind of how I feel about it. What's going on? Where are you? And by verse 5, I think it was, he finally got to, but God is steadfast love. But it took him a while. It was disorienting. And and, and so the starting point is different. And that makes all the difference. When you start with God is, suddenly the trials and the troubles look differently. Differently. In fact, if you, if you read on in verse 2, that's why he goes on to say, Therefore, we will not fear. Because God is these things, we will not fear even in the midst of devastating trial. So the question here at the beginning even is, who is God for you? If I were to ask you to give some descriptors, tell me, How are you experiencing God right now? Who is He? What would you say? Would you say absent? Would you say somewhat schizophrenic? Sometimes He's for me, other times He's against me. Or would you say refuge, strength, help? Now, the third word in this verse don't worry, we're not going to go this slow through the entire psalm. <laughs> you got God is, and then God is our. God is our. I want you to notice the first person plurals throughout this psalm. There is no I, me, myself. It's It's our, us, we. And what this draws out is a lot of what I talked about last time, and that is that God... Doesn't just covenant himself to an individual. He covenants himself to a people. And he is all of these things with us together. He is our refuge, our strength, our help. And we get something different sometimes in the culture and in uh, the church, even these days. You get this sense of kind of, it's about me and Jesus, kind of anti-authoritarian, anti authoritarian, anti institution. It's about me and Jesus and whether or not I assemble with His people, that's really of no consequence. He just cares about my heart and my closet time. But we can't, we can't buy into that deception, you guys. I'm so glad you're here because you haven't. You haven't bought into it. Because when we go off like that, we actually cut ourselves off from vital nutrient for our soul. We are the body of Christ. We need one another. And we were meant not just to rejoice with one another, but to weep with one another. To experience suffering together. Because I'll tell you something, if God right now is feeling like He's absent, is feeling like He's schizophrenic or capricious or whatever it might be, your community, the community of saints, can help you get back to who God is. Is You hear Sean or you hear others sharing about how God answers prayer, and you think, he's a very present help in times of trouble. I wasn't feeling that. You see, suffering already trends towards isolation, does it not? We don't want our theology to lead us there as well. Does that make sense? God is our. Let's get the our back in our troubles that was all just intro stuff now verses two and three this is where we start to see the first part of our contrast coming into view remember we're looking at an ironic contrast in verses one through seven verses two through three let's read them therefore we will not fear Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. Just to get this out of the way, nobody knows what Selah means, okay? <laughs> no scholars know. Some people throw out ideas like maybe it means rest or quiet down. That would be nice. It sounds good. You should name your daughter that. But we're not sure. I actually thought about it. But, you know... we. We don't know what it means. So, but what I want you to notice in verses 2 through 3, we're being pointed to the instability of this world. More particularly, the psalmist is using this kind of creation language. He's alluding back to Genesis 1 creation type language. I don't know if you catch it or not, but what he is showing us is that things are actually moving in reverse from Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we have this movement from waters, dividing those, land coming forth, stability, God establishing boundaries and other things. In our psalm, we have the waters kind of pulling back creation and threatening to undo it all. You can write this down. I won't read it, but Psalm 104, five and nine, or five through nine, kind of talks about creation in the way that we can kind of see. It's, we're moving in reverse here. We know this is this is kind of interesting um, that the ancient Israelites did not view the sea like we did, or like we do. I mean, my family and I take. Vacation by the sea. We just got back from it. The ancient Israelites did not do such a thing. They did not have condos on the beach. The sea, the waters, these primal waters from which the earth uh, emerges. you remember the Spirit hovering over the waters? and These waters represent something chaotic, something unruly. Something that God has to come in and say you will go here and no further. I establish boundaries for you. They are threatening. They are ominous. We catch something of that still today with like our fascination with sharks and things. In fact, this was crazy. When when we were in South Carolina, I'm not kidding you. There's like an estuary or something where where the the, um, alligator, crocodiles, alligators, they swim actually out through the, through this, the rivers and things that meet up in the ocean. And they get into the ocean and they were like 10 feet away from my, my uh, sister and her husband. There's, a, there's an alligator like 10 feet away. I'm scared of sharks. And there's, I do not even think to be scared of alligators. So we, we get this sense that the waters are unruly and scary to some degree today, but nothing like what, what the ancient Israelites had. Okay? And so when we come to this psalm, and we see in verses 2 through 3 that the sea is rebelling, we understand they're saying something chaotic, something decreational is happening here. We see that the earth is giving way in verse 2. 2a. We see the mountains are slipping into the heart of the sea. Verse 2b. We see that the waters are raging and foaming and swelling up with pride, and the mountains, these stable aspects of God's creation, are trembling before it. The image is creation is coming undone all around us. And what this highlights for us is the disorienting nature of trial, right? The disorienting nature of trial. When things go wrong in your life and it feels like the ground is shaking beneath you. What once felt stable is now quaking and going. And you don't know where up or down is. I mean, this is why, have you heard the language, my world is falling apart. Heard that before? That's what this psalm is about. My world is falling apart. The creation, the stable creation, is coming undone. And I ask you, have you ever felt like this? Maybe the ground is shaking beneath you even now. Where do you go? What do you do? Where do you find stability? seems like the psalmist isn't afraid because he knows who his God is. Now, verses 4 to 5. This is where we start to get the second part of our contrast coming into view. And we see the stability of the city of God. You got instability over here? Stability now in verses 4 and 5. Read it. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her; she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Where verses two through three brought us raging and foaming and swelling waters, verses four through five bring us this gently rolling river with streams that are making this city and its people glad, rejoice. Just a complete opposite picture of what's going on. Where verses 2 through 3 speak of something so seemingly firm as mountains being moved into the heart of the sea, verses 4 through 5 speak of the city of God, His holy habitation, or in Hebrew, His tabernacle, His dwelling place, it's a place that shall not be moved. So you've got this chaotic sea and this gentle rolling stream. You have this shaking of mountains and trembling and falling into the heart of the sea. And then you have this city. It can't be moved. Now, what we know that the Israelite would have thought, because remember, we're Old Testament here right now, we know that the, old, that the uh, Israelite would have read in this psalm and when he was singing it, he would have been thinking about the temple in Jerusalem, the holy city of God and His habitation, the temple. We know that that's where he would have been going, God's chosen city in Jerusalem where He has made His dwelling place with them. This is His city, His holy habitation. Here is Israel's hope. But now, why do I say that this contrast is ironic? At this point, it's just a contrast. Polar opposites. Why am I saying that there's irony here? Why am I saying that there's something unexpected? That actually what appears to be is quite the opposite. Bear with me. The answer actually lies in the Hebrew beneath our translation. Because the words, there is, in uh, verse 4, There is a river, okay? There is, is not in the actual Hebrew. It's it's an interpretive rendering. We have to do our best to get it into English. But what I want to show you is when we remove the there is, and we put verse 3 with verse 4, some irony comes into view. Let's read this. It says, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, a river whose streams make glad the city of God. One commentator suggests, and I agree, let me read this to you, that we are to understand verse 4 as a comment on verse 3. So, what are these surging, destructive waters? But a river. Even a cosmic disaster is totally controlled and purposeful in the hands of the lord are you with me here what appears to be to our eyes a raging sea when we consider who god is and his sovereignty over all of history those waters prove to be a gently rolling stream working for our joy and his glory Another quick Israelite history lesson. This is very interesting, you guys. In the temple itself, Solomon's temple, they actually picture this reality for us. There was this big bronze basin that they called the sea. It stood in the courtyard of the temple. They actually called it the sea. Okay, now it um, was over 14 feet in diameter, seven feet high, could hold 12,000 gallons of water. So we got this huge thing here. What was it used for? The washing of the priests. And so, what is the implication of this sort of stuff? What is God trying to teach His people? I rule over the sea, that chaotic, scary, unruly place. I rule it. I domesticate it for your good. I use it to wash. I use it to cleanse. I use it to bless. It's not out of control for me. I'm the God who sets boundaries and works for the good of my people. So these raging waters in verses 2-3 through three are not what they seem. They seem boundless and destructive, but they are given banks and channeled by Yahweh for the satisfaction and joy of His people. They are, in fact... The river whose streams make glad the city of God. Let me ask you this. If when I was saying, "Oh, have you ever felt like the ground is shaking beneath you? Have you ever felt like your world is coming undone? Like it's all just slipping back into the sea? If you were going, yeah, I feel that right now. Do you believe that He's doing this with those waters for you? Do you believe that He's giving those waters banks, that He's channeling those towards a good and holy and glorious end? That though it seems like things are out of control, there is one who is in heaven who is always in control and He is for you, not against you. Now, verses 6 through 7. We'll move somewhat quickly here because essentially what they do uh, for us is bring together and sum up the themes developed in our psalm thus far. But they also kind of advance uh, things into finer focus. We can see a little bit clearer. It brings things together and takes us one step further. Uh, verse 6 is where I want to begin. Look at, at that. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice, the earth melts. And what I want to point out is that the chaotic imagery of verses 2-3, through three, where it was described of waters uh, raging and, and, and the mountains that are, are being moved and tottering, now that language is being, is being uh, uh, described for or used for nations and kingdoms. And what this points out, what this gives us a sense, is what the trials were for Israel that probably gave rise to to things like this psalm. And that is that they were under siege by foreign enemies. They were constantly in conflict with the nations around them. And for them, that's what the raging waters, that's what the world is coming undone was. But we see verses 4-5. through show up in, in, in verse 6 as well. God is there. And with just a word, just a word, silences is at all. The earth melts and His people are secure. Now, you might think of certain examples in, in Israel's history uh, where this in fact was the case. I mean, one of them might be Exodus, right? The Exodus from Egypt through the Red Sea where they're standing on the banks and God says, hey, be still, be silent. I'm fighting for you. And while they're there and they wait through the night, right? In the morning, in the morning, God parts the sea. And what was the pathway to freedom for them through the unruly waters (laughs) was in fact the tomb of, of their enemies he conquers he overcomes and his people are safe the raging sea comes a gentle stream for his people you might think of when Assyria was coming against Israel trying to take Jerusalem from Hezekiah and Sennacherib is, is giving all of these, uh, he's, all these boasts and threats. Yahweh is not going to be there for you when I show up. And Hezekiah, what does he do? He runs into the temple. God, do you hear these threats? Show up for your people. Be exalted in our midst. And what happens? Well, Israel, uh, the people of Israel go to sleep. They do nothing. They are where I'm going with this, why am I? They are still, okay, and know that He is God. Okay. They do nothing. They go to sleep and in the morning, in the morning they wake to find that the angel of the Lord killed, I don't even remember how many of their enemies, 185,000 men and the Assyrians run out. He takes the chaos. He takes the unruly circumstances and He moves them towards a good end. But Israel was often feeling these nations like the sea. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what's coming in at your life, but you know. And He wants to do the same thing that He did with them. He wants to show up powerfully. Tame those waters and use them for your good. In verse... um, 7, we're given the refrain of this psalm. It's repeated, if you notice, there in verse 11. It says this, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. All I want to point out here is that this confidence that we have in verse 1, who God is, it shows up again here that God is our fortress. All of this is grounded in the fact that He is God of Jacob. In other words, the God of covenant. In other words, the God of promise. And He keeps His promises. It's because He's made covenant with us that we can be sure He will keep us in the midst of the storm. He will be refuge, strength, and help. Now, verses 8-11. through An ironic command. An ironic command. The reflections that have preceded in this psalm give rise now to a very interesting string of of commands i wonder if you'll catch him as we go um verses 8 through 11 let's read come behold the works of the lord how he has brought desolations on the earth he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth he breaks the bow and shatters the spear he burns the chariots with fire be still and know that i am god I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. There's the refrain. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Do you see the four commands I'm talking about? I'll give them to you. Come, behold, be still and know. It's kind of convenient that it rhymes. It's got some nice poetic value, maybe mnemonic value for us. Come, behold, be still, and know. The reason why I say that's convenient is because you know how like in fires, they stop, drop, and roll. They come up with these quick little little catchphrases to help you remember in times of trial, in times of fire. That's the same kind of thing here where you're going to be disoriented. You're going to not what to do and you're going to be looking all over the place for help and I want you to remember come behold be still and know that's our stop drop and roll that's our that's the way we survive the earthquake of the soul come behold be still and know but what come and behold what be still and know what what I've got two things for us, but the most important thing is this. You could sum it up. God. Come and behold, be still and know God. God is the one, Yahweh is the one who's made all the difference in this psalm. Okay? Because He is very present and helping in our trouble, We don't have to fear. Verses 1 and 2. Because He is in the midst, He is in the midst of the city, she won't be moved. It's His presence that makes all the difference. Because the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is with us, He is our refuge, our strength, our fortress. He's the one we run into, okay? Not some other place, not even a building, not even a group of people. He is the object of our come and behold, be still and know. This being still and knowing, then, if we are to be still and know that He is God, I don't know if you've ever, before I was a believer, I did, Kind of meditation, if you believe that. I was trying to seek God. New age kind of meditation stuff. And you want to know what they have you do? They want you to be still. But they want you to know nothing. They want you to keep doing a mmm until your mind is filled with nothing. And then you have peace. Then you have stillness. That is not the way we go. We get stillness not by emptying our mind, but by filling it with God. We get peace that way. That's what our meditation looks like. Be still and know me. And then peace will come into the heart, even in the midst of radical circumstance. Second thing I want you to note from from uh, verses eight through eleven that we are to come behold be still and know is God's present and future victory. You see, come and behold the works of the Lord there in verse eight. We're supposed to know that He is going to be moving towards peace, and He will be fully and finally exalted in the earth over all the nations. Over all the waves. That's where history is going and he wants us to know this. And it's crazy when you look at the language because it says, come and and behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought desolations to the earth. You go, we just had this incredible vision of peace there in verses 4 and 5 and a little stream and we're all like dancing by the stream and now we're talking about desolations. Desolations. But look at what kind of desolations he brings. This is awesome. He makes wars cease. He makes war on war. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. That's the kind of violent. He gets violent with, with implements, instruments of violence. Shatters them. He burns the chariots with fire. He's making war on war. He's putting to death death. He's cursing the curse. That's the kind of violence. Those are the kind of desolations we're talking about here. And we are called to hope in this present, partially, and coming fully victory. By faith, drawing that back so that even in the midst, even when the world is quaking around us, we are stable in the city of God. Now, why do I say that this command is ironic? What's ironic about come, behold, be still and know? Why do I say that's unexpected and it accomplishes kind of the opposite of what you would think? Well, think about your trials, think about your troubles. Think about what you're prone to do, what you want to do. If the world was coming, if this ground was shaking right now, how many of you would just kind of stand here like, cool? No, we'd all be like, oh, you know, running for the doors. And some of us would have better earthquake training than others. We'd know we got to, I don't know what you're supposed to, you're not supposed to go to the doorway anymore. You're supposed, I don't know what you're supposed to do. I still need to learn. <laughs> but we would be moving. We'd be trying to save ourselves. We'd be at work. We'd be going, right? Give me a sword. I'll take the enemy. That's how we respond intuitively, naturally to our trials. And God says here, His command, you want to know what you need to do? You're you're anxious to do something? Let me give it to you. Do nothing. Stop. Just come, behold what I'm doing. Be still and know who I am. That's enough for you. This is why, in the title of the sermon, I called it a call to active passivity. It's ironic. It's not what we normally would, would do in our trials. But we're to be ferociously aggressive in our passivity. You could call it the fight for faith. We are fighting to believe. Active passivity actually requires incredible effort. (laughs) Come, behold, be still and know. Now, finally, an ironic Christ, an ironic Christ. I want you to imagine. Again, I, I don't like to jump ahead and just read Jesus into everything before we even get there. I want to be an Israelite for a little bit and show you the, 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 the anticipation of the Messiah that's all throughout the Scriptures. It's incredible. But I want you to imagine you are an Israelite here. You've been singing this psalm in the temple. You've seen God come to defend His name, His city. You saw him establish it with, uh, from Egypt. You saw him defend it from Assyria and countless others. And you have all expectation that he will never fail. He will always defend Jerusalem and his dwelling place, the temple. And then, the sin of your people rises to such a degree that there is no more remedy. Remedy. And Ezekiel tells us that, that um, the glory of the Lord departs from the temple. The very presence that makes it a stable place. Not the temple building, not the walls. God leaves and He exposes them to the nations, in particular to Babylon. And Babylon comes in, desecrates the city, desecrates the temple, even takes the sea Breaks it into pieces so they can haul the bronze back to Babylon. You're watching this and you're thinking I mean we sang Psalm 46 Here in this pile of rubble. Where is God? Where is his holy city? Where is his temple? Where are his promises? Where is his covenant? Has he left me? No. The Christ, the Messiah, Jesus. He would show us when He came that Israel and its temple and all of its dressings were symbols and shadows pointing forward to His person and work. He is the real tabernacle of God's presence. Emmanuel, God with us. He is the temple. You remember this? Destroy it, but I will rebuild it in three days. Speaking of the temple that was His body. I am the presence of God here. I am all that the temple stood for. And He teaches us, no longer are we going to worship on this mountain or even in Jerusalem, but in spirit and in truth. He connects us to the heavenly city, where in Hebrews twelve twenty eight, when it says, We have come in Christ to a kingdom that what? Cannot be shaken. All this unmovable city language in verses four and five, fulfilled in Christ, we're given access to it in Him. And He overcomes our greatest enemies. Not Egypt, Assyria, or Babylon, but Satan, sin, and death. And He fulfills the covenant made to Jacob. In Him, every promise is yes and amen. But, 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 He does this in an ironic way. In a way that no one was expecting. He does this. He fulfills this psalm. He sings this psalm. I gave it away. (laughs) He fulfills all these things by singing this psalm. I'll show you what I mean. As the chaotic sea of nations raged against him, Gentile, Jew, and their rulers were told in Acts 4, he was still, was he not? He was, a, he was aggressive in his passivity. On his knees, sweating drops of blood. Aggressively trusting his father. Peter, put down that sword. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? John 18, 11. And what was in the cup? What was in the cup as the nations came? What, what wasn't in, in the cup but the, the furious sea of God's wrath against yours and my sin? Shouldn't I drink the cup that the Father has given me? Put away your sword. This is a kingdom unlike no other. I conquer in an ironic way. No one thinks I'm winning right now, but I am. And while he drank the sea down to its dregs on the cross, experiencing in his body the full weight of God's fury, in his resurrection, God took the sea of wrath and through his wounds forged streams of grace for the world. absorbed in His body the chaos, the sea, the waters, that rage. And from Him now comes gentle, rolling streams of grace. And He invites us. He invites us to drink. I mean, this is why, this is why you hear it here in John 7 when He says, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's the one that grants us access to that river whose streams make glad the city of God. Come to him, his person, his presence, and drink. Come to the cross. He has opened it up for us and connects us to it. And we receive it now by faith. He paid for my sin. God is for me, not against me. Everything, every sea becomes a stream now for me in Christ. We receive it now by faith and we will follow that stream until it shows up in the new heavens and new earth and we drink from it right there. Think about this. I know we're, 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 don't worry, we we are done here in just a minute. Stick with me. John speaks in Revelation about how after the Son, by the sword of his mouth, okay, with a word the earth melts, by the sword of his mouth puts to death the kings of the earth. Judgment. Okay? Lowers it all. After that, new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. You wanna know what it says? No temple there. This is is right there in Revelation 21 and 22. There is no temple there. Why? Because God and the Lamb are the temple. There is no night there. We are now in the eternal dawn. Why? Because God and the Lamb are there. Not because there's a sun. There's no sun either. There will be no sea there. We're told... You know why now, hopefully? The sea, if you read Revelation, all the beasts and all these scary things come up from it. It was something that was chaotic and unruly in Israelite understanding. The sea is not there, but you want to know what is there? The river of living water flows through the street. And and fruit is just going to exploding off of its banks. And you want to know the source of that river? It says it's coming from the throne. It's God and the Lamb. This is where we are headed. And it's all by grace. We didn't lift a finger. We were still and let Him be God. You know what he says in Revelation 22? Let the one who is thirsty come. Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Stop your striving. Stop trying to earn it and receive it without price. Not because it's cheap, but because He paid it all. And so He sings this psalm to us. He takes the sea and turns it into that river and He he gives it to us freely by faith and soon by sight and all by grace. And therefore, we can now sing this psalm back to Him. He is the one that takes all the themes of the psalms to their end. He is our refuge, our strength. He is the evidence of God's very present help in time of trouble. He is our fortress. And He is the one that we are called to come stand before, behold Come, behold, be still and know He is God and Savior. Sit there at His cross. Be in awe of what He has done and be assured every raging sea will turn for you into a gently rolling stream. Let's pray. God, I... Can't wait. Can't wait to get there. Can't wait to see your victory. What an unexpected victory. That it was by death that you put death to death. It was by becoming a curse that you cursed the curse. Lord, we pray in these moments we would be still. Stop striving to get right with You on our own efforts and works. Stop striving to save ourselves from our trials. Be still and know that You are God. It's in Your name we pray and sing. Amen.